Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17-21. to 21. This is the word of the Lord. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, you would give us your wisdom. Father, that we would understand your word and in understanding it that we would live it and that we would not be uh, delusional uh, hearers, Father, but uh, that we would do as this word uh, exhorts us. Father, bless us as we meditate upon this passage. May every one of our thoughts and meditations be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we come back to this passage that is particularly dense. Two weeks ago, I preached about addressing God as Father. Simple idea of addressing God as Father and the importance of God's what I would call archetypal fatherhood, that his fatherhood is the first fatherhood and all fatherhood that we see anywhere else is derivative from his fatherhood. And last week we thought about living a life in the fear of that father, the fear of God. Because God is an impartial judge, the Holy Spirit exhorts us to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. Now the argument continues in verse 18, where the Holy Spirit tells, uh, he tells us the, the answer to the question, why? Why should we live a life of fear? Why should Christians, of all people, live a life of fear? That we should live a life of fear, of fearing God, is the uniform message of God's word. Solomon, in his deathbed confession in Ecclesiastes, after he has observed and experienced everything under the sun, right, concludes the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or bad. The psalmist, in one of his psalms, in, in one of the songs of ascents, which the songs of ascents in the 120s 
and 130s were, were sung as worshipers gathered to the temple to worship, that psalmist writes this, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Even the forgiveness we have received by faith in Jesus Christ does not bring the fearing of God to an end. Rather, the psalmist says it establishes fear. Forgiveness establishes the fear that we have of God. And that really is what the Apostle Peter elaborates on in this passage in his letter. He's going to tell us why we should fear God. And it has to do, it has to do very simply with the way that he's brought about your redemption. Fear is established by the fact that the sacrifice for your redemption was so costly. It was so cosmically glorious and costly. Right? To, to respond to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the unblemished Lamb of God, with an attitude of, with an attitude of whatever, with an attitude of let me sin so that grace may abound, is to reject this exhortation to live the balance of our lives in the fear of God. So first, the Apostle Peter writes, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. So the first answer to the question of why live a life of fearing God is this. It's you were not redeemed with something created, with something perishable, with something impermanent, with something that moth and rust can destroy. Right? You, were redeem- you were not redeemed by some, some repository of silver and gold some, sitting somewhere. The, the gold of Fort Knox, right? 147.3 million ounces um, of gold. It's not worth that much. It's only worth $6 billion. Which if you contrast that to our national debt, it's a drop in the bucket, right? So don't think that the gold of Fort Knox is going to pull us out of this one, right? But nonetheless, 147.3 million ounces of gold that is unable to redeem mankind. It, it, is, it is vastly too small a payment. Right? Why? Because those who have sinned have sinned against a God who is holy and whose justice requires that sin actually be dealt with, whose justice requires that sin actually be atoned for. The debt that is accumulated for every one of, every sinful man is, it's not a monetary debt. It's a mound of sin. It's a debt of sin, and sin cannot be dealt with or removed from a man except by what? Except by the shedding of blood. And that is the payment that is required to redeem a man from the debt of sin that he has accumulated. And the price is not some gold or some silver, but the price is the full satisfaction of the justice of God, which comes through a particular kind of blood. 
Psalm 49. Psalm 49 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. You can't pay off the sins of your brother to God. For the redemption of him is costly. For his redemption is costly and he should cease trying forever. Right? The, the costliness of the redemption is what calls us to fear God. Do, do people today try to redeem themselves to better their situation, even with God, by the use of gold and silver, with wealth? Of course, there's nothing new under the sun. It is without a doubt that many believe that their philanthropy will put God in their debt. Right? With their gold and their silver, they believe they will have a sweet afterlife because they have righted wrongs and they pursue justice by money. Their gold and their silver is a payment to God. They wouldn't say that, but that's what it is. Their, their gold and their silver is a payment to God with the expectation that He's going to be happy with, with that payment. Not true, says the Apostle. Your gold and silver is perishable. Your gold and silver is, is as good as nothing. Should you have all the gold in the world, all the wealth of, of all the nations, it would not be enough to redeem one man from one of his sins. It is beyond the ability of men or angels to bridge the infinite divide between a sinner and the holy God. Why does the Apostle Peter mention that the people's way of life, which they had inherited from their forefathers, was futile? Right? He mentions that there in uh, verse 18. Matthew Henry remarks on this. He says, It is folly to resolve, I will live and die in such a way because my forefathers did so. God had purposes of special favor toward his people long before he made manifest such grace unto them. But the clearness of light, the supports of faith, the power of ordinances are all much greater since Christ came upon earth than they were before. And so, what he's getting at, the idea of redeeming oneself by law-keeping was a futile way of life. Right? Whether one was a Jew or one was a Greek, Pharisees always like to set up little laws so that they can keep them and therefore declare to the whole world that God owes them. But the law of God, but the law of God, right, which no man is able to keep, was never going to be a way to put God in the debt of man. Never. That was not its intent. No, its intent was actually the very opposite. The law came in so that the tra transgression would increase. Increase. The law made man, therefore, a debtor to, to God. The law increased the payment needed for the redemption of mankind beyond a cost that could be covered by perishable things like gold or silver. And yet, so vain, so futile is man that he still thinks that he can impress God and put God in his debt by what he does. This is futility. That is the worst kind of vanity. It is delusional, but very common. 
So again, we return to 1 Peter in verse 19, and we receive a positive answer for why we should walk in holiness, fearing God. You were not redeemed with perishable things, but you were redeemed with what? With precious blood. With precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were redeemed with the blood of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, who being made in the likeness of men, right, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 9 says this, Christ entered the holy place not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. Do you get this? Are you, are you beginning to have a sense of the cost of redemption? Gold and silver not sufficient. The relentless slaughter of and pouring out of the blood of, of animals, of goats and bulls, not sufficient. Right? Too high a cost, too low a payment for all those things. But the blood of Jesus Christ... The God-man, yes, sufficient. He was a lamb unblemished. In other words, he had not broken the law. He, he was perfect. He was without sin. There was no deficiency at all in him. And so, he was the perfect sacrifice. The just for the unjust. Jesus shed blood was the payment needed to erase the debt sinful man had accrued with a holy, holy, holy God. The value of the blood of Jesus Christ. Think of it. The value of it. And think of the the fact that this transaction, the shedding of the blood of the Son was worked out before time and across all history by the Father. Think of it. Not only is it a payment that satisfies the Father, but it is the Father's very work to supply that satisfying sacrifice. Jesus didn't stumble upon his shed blood being the price of redemption. He knew it was before the foundation of the world. And so, if you have Jesus, you really do get to eat your cake and have it too. The debt is paid. Stop again and think about this, brothers and sisters. The blood of Jesus Christ is precious, not merely because it redeems us, but it is precious because because it has value with the Father. That's why it's precious. So valuable is the Son of God to the Father that those who refuse to acknowledge the value of the Son will be eternally punished for rejecting someone so infinitely valued by the Father. That's hell. Hell is for people who don't love Jesus like the Father loves Jesus. The jealous love of God the Father burns against those who would reject His Son whom He loves. Those who will not 
Honor him will not be honored by the Father. Those who see no value in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work will, upon their death, be confronted by an angry and uncovenanted God. Hebrews 10.29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father's love for his son is love that is perfectly pure. It's perfectly eternal. It is the very reason that love is. Right? So that which is precious to God, that which is able to satisfy the very justice of God, that which is able to propitiate a wrathful God, that which was shed for you while you were yet a sinner is... Is that just ho-hum to you today? I mean, did you honestly wake up this morning and think, it's a bummer to have to go to church and hear again about the blood of Jesus Christ? I've done that before. The thing that, the one thing in the whole world that, that you have that satisfies God blood of Jesus Christ. Does that which is precious to God just make you yawn and roll over and go back to sleep? Right? Should it not be that when you contemplate the cost that was paid, when you think about the infinite value of the blood of the Son of God, when you observe in Scripture the jealous love God has for His only begotten Son, when you then observe him sacrificing that son so that you, despicable worm, might be redeemed, should it not be that you should go around giving thanks and being obnoxious about Jesus all the time? Your friends and your family and your co-workers and the strangers you bump into should really be strangely fascinated by your strange combination of both joy and fear. It won't compute. You're the freak who praises God for the forgiveness of sins and then in the, in the, in the very next moment is circumspect and fearful that you've offended that God. You're going to be misunderstood. The Apostle Peter, don't forget, is exhorting us to holiness and the fear of God. And his argument is that the preciousness of the blood of Christ, which was shed for you, should be an impetus. It should be a compelling pressure leading you to holiness, leading you to live a life of fear while you live on this earth. Some people think that because the blood of Christ is so powerful, and so precious to God that we should sin. So that God could apply that blood to more sin. Right? That kind of 
misunderstanding is soundly condemned by the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. We are not to sin so that grace may abound. Right? Rather, because of the infinite value of Christ's blood, because of the intense preciousness of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, we're to be afraid of God. To not fear when we are the recipients of such a glorious gift would be to be like an ungrateful and angry child in a household who has had every single one of his needs met by his hard-working parents. Right? An ungrateful child who's never had to once think about his next meal. To not fear when we are gifted such a glorious salvation, won by such a glorious Redeemer, would be like to be a man who is given a very fragile and expensive gift. And he transports it home in the pocket of his cargo shorts. Which would inevitably be camouflage. Right? To not fear when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is to be deaf and to be dumb and to be blind and ignorant of what is most precious. And so looking at verses 20 and 21, stop and soak in these verses. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Calvin asked this question when thinking about these verses. He said, what would be the stability of our faith if we believe that a remedy for mankind had suddenly occurred at length to God after some thousands of years? He's like, what, you know, if we we thought about this redemption and, and there had been blood and violence and death and and destruction, and and sin, and the proliferation of sin, and it's 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years in, and God's like, oh, I know what we can do. We can send you to redeem mankind and, and get this figured out. But what does this verse say? It says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus, just after talking about his blood, it says that he's foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was Redeemer before there was a man. So these verses are teaching us that the salvation of God was worked out in the eternal counsel of the triune God. Our salvation was not something that occurred to God only after He had tried a few things and failed at them. No, the salvation of God for His people was, as the Word of God says, Here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Stupendous verses. Mind-boggling verses. It's another thing to make us awe at and appreciate our salvation, right? The work was foreknown by God before anything occurred. But then Jesus appeared in time to accomplish that eternal plan. And for whom did he do that? The Apostle Peter says, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Right? For you who through him 
are believers of God. For you, stupendous joy, right? For you. For you. That should fill, again, your minds with awe. It should also fill your minds with fear. The almighty, eternal God chose me before the foundation of the world, and I find it hard to read his word. God's had his mind set on me eternally, and it's hard for me to put five minutes of my day on him. When you contemplate the preciousness of the gift and the eternal source of that gift, your mind should be blown, your spirit should soar, right? And you should, you should walk on earth day by day being filled with a filial fear of God, right? We, we will be those who give thanks to God for His stupendous grace. We'll be like, thank you for forgiving all my sins. And then the next moment we're, we're, we're standing fearful to offend him because of that gift of forgiveness. It's the most holy of double-mindedness. Sweeping together verses 20 and 21, the glory of Jesus Christ is described to give us a sense of the unmatched glory of our redemption. The Son of God was foreknown before the foundation of the world, He was set apart as the redeemer of mankind before there even existed a man. Even while his his covenant office was eternal, he was was known um, and has come and has appeared. He was incarnated through him by his work on your behalf. His work through him, you become believers in God. The Father raised the Son from the dead, gave him that glory that Jesus talked about when he prayed to the Father, that high priestly prayer in John 17. And all of that glory, all of that covenantal method, all of that love from the triune God, it's just an embarrassment of riches. Right? That God would give you any attention is mind-boggling because you, like me, were just dust. That he would redeem you with, by the precious blood of the Son of God, well, that's beyond astonishing, right? It is, it is all that's worth knowing. It is the only thing worth thinking about and contemplating. All of this glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All of this glory, all of this work done by God on your behalf is so that you might have faith and hope in God. The world may boast of its redeemers, right? The world has lots of redeemers. The world may boast of its redeemers. The world may sell every object as that which will bring you the utmost satisfaction, right? The world may speak of, the, of saviors and the triumph of good over evil that occurs in all of her movies and stories ripping off the Christian faith, Right? The world may talk of the virtues of an authentic life, but these are all imitations. They're counterfeits of the covenant-keeping triune God. The things of the world, for those of you who have faith and hope in God, have become strangely dim. 
Right? God Almighty has defeated sin through the death and resurrection of His Son. There is no need for a powerless counterfeit. Why so much attention to the powerless counterfeits? You're looking for redemption which in things that can't redeem. And so set your mind on the things above and not the things of the earth. Don't be distracted by lesser glories. You have the glory and the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ which will occupy your mind eternally. Right? The blood of Christ, the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless has been shed for you. You need nothing else. Nada. You don't need anything else. You can know all contentment. You can know contentment if you're poor. You can know contentment if you're rich. You can know contentment if you have uh, ailments and diseases. You You can know contentment if it's your first breath on earth or your last breath on earth if you know about the blood of Jesus Christ and its redeeming power for His people. 